just a little bit about myself. Grew up in a home where we were 22 children. My father had five wives. So I have 21 brothers and sisters. So growing up in a home like that, going to school, becoming a doctor, and addressing important people like you in a magnificent place like this is not something that was at the back of my mind. There is only one word that can explain why that difference from that background to where we are today. And that one word is grace. If it was not for the grace of God, I would not be standing before us today. So in case some of you are tempted to think, can I ever reach that stage? Can I ever become so and so? It is possible because of that one word, grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. Another reason why I'm standing before you this afternoon, in 1988, a young man died in my hands. Complications of HIV and AIDS. I was his medical doctor. Four days before he passed on, he challenged me. I was working in Tororo, Eastern Uganda. Doctor, what else can you do to save my life? I said, I'm doing the best that I can. He said, but it's not good enough for me. I'm going to die at the age of 24. And when I die, are you sure there is life after death? Because in this world, the Bible talks about surviving at least for 60 years or 70, at most 80. But I'm now dying at 24, so I'm losing the benefit of those remaining years. But I don't want to lose eternal life. So are you sure there is life after death? I said, yes. Don't you know what the Bible talks about? You know how Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And when he was talking to Mary and Martha, he told them, if anyone believes in me, they will never die. They will live forever and ever and ever. And there are many other passages in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, I think, verses 13 to 18. It talks about the return of the Lord, the sound of the trumpet, and those who will be alive will be caught up in the air with him, and then will be reunited with him forever. He was talking in a hoarse voice. He said, yes, I know that. But you're just reading from the Bible. To become a doctor, you went to school. That is why you are trying to treat me. To be able to treat my soul, if I were you, I would also go to school, theological school. Add on to medicine, theological education. Then you can begin to talk with confidence about life after death. Brothers and sisters, I felt like an arrow was going through my heart. I interpreted that as a call from the Lord to add on to medicine, theological education. And by the grace of God, in 1990, I moved into this beautiful country from Uganda with my family. We had three children then. Our fourth child was born at Next, the Nairobi Evangelical Graduate School of Theology. For those of you who know Kenya, it's in Karen. I was there for six years, 1990 to 93, did an MDiv, Master of Divinity. Then I was requested to be the doctor for the college. I said, I did not leave Uganda to come and practice medicine in Kenya. Can I pick on another degree? They said, yes. So they helped me study 
MTH. And I studied two Greek words, kephale, headship, hupotaso, submission. That is a very dangerous word these days, especially when you are talking to husbands and wives, especially to the ladies. But the Bible talks about submission to the husbands, as the husband is the head of the home. So Christ is the head, um, as Christ is the head of the church, so the husband is the head of the home. So anyway, because I was now a senior staff member, the college paid for 90% of my fees for that second master's degree to the glory of God. Because my wife was married to a senior staff, she also got 90% of her degree course that she was doing paid for. So that other three years, from 94 to 96, I took three years instead of two because of being a full-time doctor, but also at the same time, full-time student. So I spread it out instead of two to three years. When I was graduating, I was to graduate at Next, 1996 in July. MAP International was looking for a medical doctor who knows how to touch face and, in face and interface with the pastors. So they were told, why don't you go to Next? There is a doctor about to graduate in July. So they hired me in May of that year so that I could not go back to Uganda. The rest is history. I've been in this country for 22 years thereafter, working as the director for MAP International, Eastern Southern Africa, five years, director for Africa, another five years, then by the grace of God, a global role, senior director for health and HIV AIDS policy. For all of the MAP offices in Africa, Latin America, we have also an office, they had an office in Indonesia and two offices in the US, Brunswick, Georgia, and in Atlanta. And I know some of you know this already, but for the sake of those who don't know, I thought I would just give that background. It does not matter where you are today. God has not done, is not yet done with you. The possibilities ahead, you are a bundle of possibilities. If you open up yourself to the Lord, there is a Lord that is going to do for you like we have been hearing from yesterday from the rest of our speakers. So if John, not his real name, had not challenged me to go to school again to study theology, I would not be addressing this topic of empowering the faith-based community today. What does it mean to empower and to engage the faith community? Why should we engage the faith community? And how should we engage the faith community? We'll go through that presentation outline, focus on empowering the what, why, and how, a few lessons that we have learned from others, but also from MAP International, an organization I was privileged to lead for about 15 years. I'll share one case study, there are several, talk about the way forward, and then we'll move on. What are the objectives? What do I hope to achieve by sharing this with us? I want us to be able to highlight the distinctive roles played by FBOs in enhancing holistic community health services. What does it mean to enhance community health services? Number two, I hope that we'll be able to commit to empowering faith communities to deliver quality health care. 
There's lots of quantity care, but it's not quality. What is it that God can enable you and me to do so that we can move from quantity to quality? And then three, identify ways for strengthening the engagement between faith communities, governments, and other partners. Do you think we can be able to do that? <laughs> Silence means consent. Thank you very much. As an introduction, I know a lady called Mona who works with the Christian Connections for International Health based in Washington. In the July newsletter of CCHI, July-August of this year, she made this statement, and I read, oftentimes, when I'm at meetings, people are surprised to meet someone from a faith organization that cares about global health issues and wants to share the work of faith-based organizations. Sadly, many people say what they hear is the news of negative, is negative regarding the people of faith. We can change that. So she says, help us to become a positive voice for the health of the people all over the world, with our policymakers, but also in our local publications. I don't know if you have heard that. I've heard in some settings, people will say, I would rather employ a non-Christian, because their commitment to work and output is better than that of Christians. That's an indictment to the Christian community. And I hope we will work towards changing that. And I think and I believe that's why you have come to this conference. But even as we talk about faith organizations, what are they? A faith-based organization is influenced by stated religious or spiritual beliefs in its mission, in its history, and in its work. For our purposes, there are three categories of FBOs that I want to flash out there. First, religious bodies at local levels, such as mosques or churches, as well as local religious orders. For example, the Sufis, if you are Muslim, the Jesuits, if you are Catholics, or Sisters of Loreto. Those are local institutions or rather bodies within our communities. Then we have the FBOs, the faith-based organizations, NGOs that are related to one or more religious traditions that provide health development, social support, and some other kinds of services. It could be an NGO, but faith-based. Or it could be a network. Groups of faith communities or faith-based organizations working together under a shared organizational structure. They have agreed that we will come together. And an example that I will share with us towards the end of this talk is IRCU, Interreligious Council of Uganda. The Interreligious Council of Uganda, IRCU, brings together the Catholics, the Anglicans, Seventh-day Adventists, the Orthodox, and the Muslims. And the heads of those institutions 
the Mufti for the Muslims, the presiding bishops for SDA, His Eminence for the Orthodox, and the Cardinal for the Catholics, and the Archbishop for the Church of Uganda, or the Anglican Church. They come together. And I'm told on a good weekend, Muslims going to their mosques on Fridays, SDA is going to pray on Saturdays, the rest of the Christian bodies and groups going to pray on Sundays. About 15 million Ugandans go through the, board, the, 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 the doors of some faith-based institution. That is just talking about the weekend. But of course, some of those other groups and churches also have meetings midweek. So if it is indeed transforming a community that we are interested in, why don't you work with such a body, a network like that, that has our ability to meet about 15 million Ugandans, and the population of Uganda, I'm told, is about 35 million. So that's about half of the country that goes through these institutions. There are messages when the bishops, especially the Catholic bishops, write a pastoral letter. It's read in every congregation in the whole country. So if indeed we are interested about changing people, why don't we work with faith-based organizations? Why don't we engage them? WCRP, World Council of Religions and Peace also brings Christians and Muslims together. When it comes to issues of advocacy, like it happened in this country one time, the Muslims and the various Christian groups got together and they walked towards parliament and they were demanding for the reduction of the prices of ARVs. And because there was a collective group and many of us talking together, that pricing of ARVs came down for the benefit of the people who we seek to serve. What makes FBOs unique? According to William Forge, a doctor who I think was heading CDC, Center for Diseases Control in the US, made this statement. Three conditions are required for people to feel responsible for the future. And the faith groups foster each of these conditions. The first one is kinship. The second one is equity. The third one is continuity. In faith groups, we understand a tradition that goes backwards and a responsibility that goes forwards. And indeed, if you look at the history of the church, 2,000 years back, they have been concerned about the health of people. But we are also looking forward. So that is our tradition. It goes backward as faith-based people. But it also goes forward. And I would want to be connected with such a tradition that goes beyond 2,000 years. When the last case of AIDS is recorded one day, hopefully in the future, the organizations that are working to stop HIV and AIDS will dissolve. But the church communities, the faith-based groups, will continue because there will still be work to do. That's why I'm excited about working with faith-based organizations. When we talk about empowering, what does it mean? to empower. These are some of the steps. Some of them I learned from friends, from Tier Fund UK, other things we coined up for those of us who are associated with LIA. I see Dr. Yared here and others. We coined them at LIA, the steps for engaging communities. Number one, we envision together with the community. What are the needs? We don't come from outside, as we were being told earlier on today by Sister Florence. We come thinking that we know what is wrong with the community, 
and then we try to sort out the problems to solve their problems and try to solve them, sometimes without consulting them. So we envision together with the community. Then, when they invite us, not when we invite ourselves to the community. There are times when we have invited ourselves. But I think it's polite to wait to be invited. When they invite us, then we enter into the community. And when we have entered, then we equip them, individuals, as we build their capacities, but also the institution and their partners that they are working with. As we continue to equip them, we are already moving towards empowering the leadership especially and other actors within that particular community. And when you empower the leader, the leader is working with several other people below them. And the definition of leadership that I like to use is the one that I've learned from the Haggai Institute, for those of you who are associated with the Haggai Institute. Leadership is a discipline of deliberately exerting influence within a group to move that group to set goals for beneficial permanence that fulfill the group's real needs and not the needs of the leader. I will repeat, leadership is a discipline of exerting special influence within a group to move that group to set goals for beneficial permanence that fulfill the group's real needs. We have had other leaders. I think you know about Amin, Amin Dada. He was a leader, yes, but he was not leading people to set goals to fulfill what it is that they needed solved. He was leading them for self-aggrandizement. And the number of people who he killed we cannot even begin to number. Today, my wife on her knees has got scars. I think that's why she wears long dresses most of the time, <laughs> because she doesn't want people to see those scars. Because at one time when we were at college in Makerere, the soldiers walked in and started beating everybody left, right, and center during the time of Amin. He made the ladies from the particular hall where my wife was to walk on their knees and as they walked on their knees on gravel, they would be beating them and pouring water on them. And when you find a pool of water, they would tell them, roll, lie down on that water and roll. Look at the sun, open your eyes. If you don't open your eyes, the back of the gun, they poke you on the cheek. We have gone through some of those experiences. People liked him, some people liked him, but that kind of leadership is destructive. It is not empowering. Maybe you know some, some other leaders who are like that. I'm hoping at the end of these two days, the organizers of this meeting will have exerted a special influence on you, will have moved you to try to set goals. That will help you to help the people who you seek to serve. So that five, ten years from now when we meet, will be hearing testimonies from some of you. I thank God that I attended that meeting in August of 2013. I learned this lesson. It helped me to do this. I already knew this, but I had some gaps. And because of those gaps, when I listened to what was being said, I was able to extend studies 
I went back to school. I built up myself. I've accomplished this goal and that goal. That's what empowerment is all about. As you empower people, you enable them, the main actors, with the requisite skills and the tools that they need to be able to do the work that they have set out to do. Part of empowerment is then also to engage all of the main actors. Envision, you enter, equip, empower, enable, engage. Last but not least, exit. There are some of us who have been leaders in my own tradition, church tradition. Those of you who know which tradition I come from, once you are made a leader, you're a leader until you reach the age of 65. If you're a good one, praise the Lord. The people you're leading will be happy. But if you're a bad one, and they make you one of those leaders at the age of 40, it means the people you are leading have to endure you for the next 25 years. <laughs> there is very little that they can do. But I think it's good to exit. The Lord Jesus Christ was in the world. How many years altogether? 33. How many years in the ministry? Three years. Within those three years, he selected a group. He exerted influence on them. Whatever he began to do, whether it was to open their eyes, the eyes of the blind, and the disciples who are there, the apostles, eventually became the apostles. It was for them to learn certain lessons. So in the end, when it came for him to go, in John chapter 19, verse 30, on the cross he's dying and he says it is finished. Doing the work. Fulfilling the will of God. Teaching the word of God. It was finished. Because he had empowered a group of 12 who when they started to do what they were to do because the Holy Spirit came upon them, even their enemies said, these people are changing the world upside down. That's the kind of empowerment and the leadership that I'm talking about. So there comes time to exit. Sister Florence this morning was talking about delegation. So he delegated. So I understand when he went to heaven, this is not in your Bibles. The angel said, is, it, is the work over? He said, yes. So whom have you handed over to? Then he started naming Peter. He said, oh my goodness, the guy who denied you. <laughs> yes. And then Thomas. Oh, you mean the doubter? Oh, yes. And then he went on. I understand the angels went to the corner and discussed a little bit. Let's ask him if he has plan B. Because that plan A is not going to work. So they came back to him and said, Lord Jesus, do you have a plan B? He said, I don't have a plan B. I have only three plans. Plan A, plan A, plan A. And because he sent the Holy Spirit to them on the day of Pentecost, you know what happened? Those who were timid and hiding, Peter preaches, and in one sermon, how many people came to the Lord? 3,000. And thereafter, look at the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. We now want to hear about Acts of you. James, John, Mary, and Peter. Add on to the 29th chapter of Acts. According to you, what are you going to do differently? Because you attended this meeting. So time should come when you have empowered others enough for us to fail. I need to step aside. They will always call you. They will always write to you. The world is now connected. We are only a click of an email away. A click of a button. And we can reach you if we still need your services. Doing more, empowerment is about doing more and doing better. 
there have been so many breakthroughs in HIV AIDS treatment and prevention that have allowed us to begin to hope for an AIDS-free generation. However, many challenges still remain. And given the challenges that still remain, we need to mobilize all the resources. They must be identified, mobilized, and maximized to make that hope a reality. Unfortunately, FBO assets have not always been counted among those resources. The UNAID sometimes, the World Health Organization and other partners who come to work with us, they work through government. And because their policies are to work through government, they will not give money to faith-based organizations or to churches. So we lose out. But also some of the things that the churches and FBOs do are not always recorded. So there is something that is lost. And we are now saying the assets of FBOs must be counted. Why focus on FBOs? In terms of empowerment, there is potential that is untapped. There are gaps that need to be filled. I was telling some friends at lunch hour, when I'm doing four things, would you like to hold your left hand like that? Just hold out the fingers. How many gaps do you see? How many? Three. Okay, hold out three fingers. How many gaps do you see? Okay, hold out two fingers. How many gaps do you see? Whatever it is that you are doing today, if some of us came to evaluate, I think we'd be able to help you to see a gap or gaps. And because we are not yet finished products, we also now need another person with their gaps. And then when we come together, perchance their strength will fill our gaps and our strength will complete their gaps. That's what empowerment is all about. And if you are then to hold your hands together, put the fingers, you would be able to close those gaps so that you could even perhaps drink some water because you are now holding your hands together. So there are gaps that need to be filled. That's why we need to engage FBOs. Leadership needs to be developed. And I've given you the working definition of leadership. New knowledge and skills need to be acquired. That's why we want to talk about visiting FBOs and helping them to do a little more. There are modern tools and ways of caring for the sick today. There's a sister called Emily here yesterday. She used to work with LIA, moved on to PAKWA, AEA Association of Evangelicals of Africa. But yesterday when I met her, she's now working with Daktari something something, an organization that is concerned about the use of technology in treating patients. You don't have to be with the patient face to face to be able to help them because of the technologies that we now have developed. This can be shared. So those are some of the reasons why we need to empower. How do we engage with them? And why should we engage with FBOs? Because they are salt and light. Yesterday we were told about being the light. Be the light and be the salt. Because partnerships matter. Because we need to redistribute resources. So if you are doing something, I also don't need to be doing the same thing that you are doing. If I'm doing something that you also need to benefit from, we could then maximize and synergize and share some of those resources instead of replicating and always beginning from ground zero. Protection of the weak. The church communities and the faith-based communities are out there protecting the weak. Value-based services. 
and then because of the sanctity of life. What has been the contribution of FBOs? I just want to focus on that first bullet. They provide at least 40 to 50% of health care in many of the developing countries. And I'm told in DRC, it could even go up to about 70%. So if you leave them out, there is a great majority of people who will not benefit. Why do we need to work with FBOs? Because without engaging them, we will not achieve the MDGs. How many MDGs are there, Millennium Development Goals? Eight. Eight MDGs. To do with the eradication of poverty, achievement of universal education, primary education, promotion of gender equality, and empowerment of women. There comes the word again. And then those in the red are all to do with health. Reducing child mortality, improving maternal health care, combating HIV and AIDS, TB, malaria, and other diseases. We are talking about health. That is all. Something that we can do to contribute as FBOs, as the rest of the people in Kenya, Uganda, wherever, work towards fulfilling the MDGs because they are going to be measured at national level. Ensuring environmental sustainability and then developing global partnerships for development. There are major challenges. Some of them are inequalities, inefficiency, poor infrastructure, limited financial and human resources. Then other people are just excluded from the services that are being delivered by our government. FBOs, faith communities, mission-based hospitals have been playing and continue to play a great role. I was talking with uh, <clears throat> Brother John Steary. He's the son of Dr. John Steary, the founder of Ten Week Hospital. And those of you who come from Bomet know the role that Ten Week Hospital has played over the years, helping people. And those of us who are in Savo Room yesterday listened to Dr. Russ, Dr. Russ talking about how he's enabling and multiplying himself through other younger doctors in terms of surgical training and promoting them so that when he leaves one day, they will take over from him. Great, great, great contributions. We thank God for people like those. Those challenges cannot be eliminated by governments alone. We need FBOs to be involved. Then these days we are hearing international development is going local. According to this gentleman, Ralph, aid groups and staff are adjusting the way that they do business. The changes are profound and they don't always come easy, he says. Many governments in the developing world need help handling the influx of budgets. There's a lot of money that is coming into Africa. We are hearing already the Chinese are coming. Thank you for the Chinese and thank you for the good roads. Our brothers from Korea are here. Thank you, Brother Kim and others. Let's continue to partner. Then other people, Americans are coming. Thank you, Lord John. Thank you, brother, for coming. Europe and other places. And as they come, let's identify what it is, where our gaps are. We focus on those gaps. Together, by partnering with them, we'll be able to close those gaps and we'll be able to improve the way we do business. There is need to add capacity and win the trust of donors so as to create sustainable partnerships. 
This is a quote from UNICEF. UNICEF is not a Christian organization. Religion plays a central integrating role in social and cultural life in most developing countries. There are many more religious leaders than health workers. They are in closer and regular contact with all age groups in society, and their voice is highly respected. In traditional communities, religious leaders are often more influential than local government officials or secular community leaders. This appeared in a Health Communicators article, 1995, by UNICEF. I know some people who work in UNICEF are Christian, but as an organization, they don't embody what you and I believe in terms of our faith in God. But they recognize we have a role to play. Why engage FBOs? Because of the track record that we already talked about. Responsiveness and long-term commitment. Integrity. Individuals in America and around the world give more of their philanthropic dollars to religious institutions than to any other group. On the whole, religious groups have a record of fiscal responsibility and a divine mandate to be good stewards of the resources that are allocated to them. Develop and build up integrity. Why engage FBOs? Access to the wide audience, like we talked about earlier on. Moral authority, advocacy, a holistic approach to health, melding the spiritual, the physical, the mental, and the social dimensions of health. That's why I'm excited about talking with and working with FBOs. When it comes to empowering the how, how do we empower? Already, Luke 4, 18 and 19 has been quoted. The Holy Spirit is upon me. The Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit is upon me. He has anointed me to do the following. As you read what Jesus talks about, opening the eyes of the blind and empowering. That is all about empowering individuals. If individuals are power empowered, they will empower families. If families are empowered, they will empower communities. If communities are empowered, the nation will be empowered. It's a parable of, I mean, not a parable, but a record in Luke chapter 4, chapter 5, verse 4 following, where Jesus found the disciples had been fishing the whole night and they didn't catch any fish. And he tells them, cast your nets to the right. And when they did, Somebody said, they told the fish, please get into those nets. <laughs> the whole night they had been fishing. And because he was powerful, he said, get in there. And when the fish got in there, the disciples could not even haul those, that fish. They had to call for friends to help them haul. In John 10, 10, we read, I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. Your role and my role is to add to the abundant life that people need, those who we seek to serve. The Jesus model had to do with three Ds, discovering who he needed to train, developing them. For three years, it was almost like an MDiv, a master's degree program. You know, MDivs these days are about three, three years. And then deploying them, Peter, an apostle to the Jews, Paul, an apostle to the Gentiles. Thomas went to India as a missionary, and each one of them contributed 
we could take that model. How do we discover the people who need to be trained? Where do we take them for training so that they are developed? And how do we deploy them? The process also enacts the Holy Spirit imbued them. The other approaches, training seminars, retreats, sharing of best practices, stewardship and accountability, encouraging us in stewardship and accountability, and even documenting what it is that we do. Facilitation of people in hardship areas. This afternoon, Reverend Omondi will be talking to us about serving in very difficult areas and the challenges that go on there. And if you don't have stamina, staying power, you give up very quickly. Secondment of medical personnel into faith institutions. Our governments have been doing that for a long time. Maybe they need to do more. They need to do more of that. It's what UNAID says about faith-based organizations. They provide spiritual encouragement. UNAID, again, is not a Christian organization, secular. But they have recognized that working with FBOs is very key, is important because of those values. Knowledge giving, imparting uh, values, and then compassionate care, moral information, respectful relationship, and curative interventions. FBOs don't just preach on Sundays only. We also have hospitals. I just gave you an example of 10 week. There are many others, Chogoria in this country, Mengo in Uganda, and some others in some other countries. But there are also other ways, if you're talking about preventing HIV and AIDS, FBOs need a lot of support. If you're going to go clockwise, beginning from the top, my red thing cannot point up there, it says, the 12 o'clock area, male and female condoms, sometimes the church is scared to talk about those words without mentioning those particular churches. But anyway, with some kind of training, building of skills, they are able to move on. Pre-exposure prophylaxis. Mother, prevention of mother-to-child transmission in terms of HIV. Treatment and prevention on the right-hand side. Male circumcision. These days it has been proven by circumcising the males, you reduce the transmission of HIV and AIDS by about 60%. Research was done in South Africa, in Kenya, and in Uganda. But unfortunately, when I was in Uganda in April and May, the word to circumcise in Luganda, one of the tribes, means to Islamize, to make a Muslim. So this particular approach was not being welcomed because people were saying, you want to make us more into Muslims? So sometimes misunderstanding of those kinds of words. So now they had to train the pastors for them to know exactly what it is they're talking about. VCT, clean injection and equipment, cervical barriers and diaphragms, microbicides, all of those are ways to prevent HIV and AIDS. There is not just one bullet, as those of you know. Esther and others are here from Compassion. You're working in these areas. There's not just one solution. There are many other things that we need to do to be able to control HIV and AIDS. What is the MAP model? Quickly, because our time is going. This is what we did at MAP International to empower faith-based organizations. Beginning on the left lower hand corner, sensitization and mobilization. 
Not everybody knows what you know. So begin with where they are, and then move on to where they are not. And then move on to advocacy. Then to do a capacity building and organizational development. Then church, HIV AIDS policy formulation and strategy development. And then encourage them to do some interventions that they are able to do. Training of pastors, developing curricula, mainstreaming HIV into theological education, several things. Then you come back to scaling up. You go through that kind of continuum. So MAP International was able to work with churches, not just in Kenya, but in East Africa, including also South Africa. And right now as we speak, St. Paul's University in Limuru, they have a master's degree program. Community Care and HIV AIDS, Esther is one of the graduates from that program. And she's able to do more today than what she was able to do maybe before she went through that course. So just networking, we are able to help one another. Giving hope. Then there is the WHO Constitution. The objective of the World Health Organization shall be the attainment by all peoples of the highest possible level of health. One time they talked about health for all by which year? By the year 2000. Did we achieve that? <laughs> We've not been able to achieve that. That's why we need FBOs to be involved to be able to achieve some of these declarations that they come up with. I want to focus on number five as we work with WHO and the head of WHO, Dr. Margaret Chan is there. She emphasizes partnerships and we've been talking about partnerships all along. Fundamental health needs, strategic concerns, but also operational concerns. Partnerships are key and FBOs can be part of those partnerships. Our health systems are collapsing. Health systems in most developing countries are so overburdened that they are hardly able to deliver the necessary services. And the picture that somebody shared with me is that one there. The donkey is supposed to pull that load, but the load has become so heavy that the donkey is not able to move. That is how some of our health systems look. We are supposed to provide services, but now somebody needs to help us before we can help other people. That's why we talk about building of capacities. There's a lot more to do. There are other things that WHO has said, but we don't have time to talk about that. I wanted to focus on self-empowerment. I don't even have to complete all the slides here. I want to stop here and take a few questions for the remaining time. But I thought we should talk about self-empowerment. At MAP, when we used to, MAP is medical assistance programs. When we used to talk about empowerment, there were five eyes. Empowerment has to do with helping people to recognize their identity. They are created in the image of God. The self-worth, self-esteem, and self-confidence derived from our creation identity. If you are created in God's image, and God is creative, it means that you and I are creative. So it means we have ideas. Ability to envision and dream alternate futures. If we implemented those ideas correctly, capacity to act, setting goals, planning, appropriate knowledge, skills and tools are given to us, 
then we are able to achieve certain things through implementation of those ideas. And if you are working within this community for a long period of time, then we are able to create the fourth eye impact, learning through monitoring and evaluation. When other people come to see what you have done in your community, in your institution, they also get influenced. They go back and want to do what you have done. So the fourth eye has contributed to the last eye, influence, advocating for just and fair laws, policies, systems, and structures. Because we have, we are created in God's image. We have that identity. When we go to a community, we don't talk about poor. Those are NGO languages, marginalized. Those are things that we don't need to be talking about. In one of the sessions that I attended, we were asked a question, what does God need to create? God creates from nothing. So don't say you are poor. Then you are a candidate for God to use to be able to produce something. If he's able to produce something from nothing, and for you, you are just alive, you are even breathing, you are walking, you have been eating, Somehow you have some little resource somewhere. God is interested in helping you utilize that. Identity, ideas, implementation, impact, and influence. Engaging the faith communities. Create space for formal and informal discussions with faith-based initiatives. Conferences like this create that space for us to engage. Leverage the tremendous financial resources of the Western world and Asia more aggressively. There are many resources that still need to come, but we need to know how to be able to capture some of those resources, the way we do our proposals, the way we write to the people who we seek help from. Extend more support to grassroots FBOs and institutions in, front lines, in the front lines of battle against what somebody has called PID, poverty, Disease and illiteracy. Sometimes they talk about ignorance, but it's really to do with illiteracy, PID. We need to be able to engage that PID as faith-based organizations. And the more we do that, because of our extensive reach, we'll be able to make a difference as we go along. A group called Kwaha, Christians United Against HIV and AIDS in Africa, came up with 13 ways to build up the capacity, the 13 key aspects that constitute HIV and AIDS competency in a church if you are responding to HIV and AIDS specifically. They came up with what they called foundational aspects, the strategic aspects, and the ecclesiastical aspects. The foundational are just the facts and sexuality, talking about sex and sexuality. When we started at MAP International to talk to pastors about sex and sexuality, one of the meetings I attended, I challenged the bishops, Brother Marube, I told them, write the name of your sexual organ in your vernacular. The bishop's hands started shaking and I saw some fans falling down. <laughs> because you don't do that. I said, if we cannot talk about this in our vernacular, how can we then be able to influence the communities that we serve? 
we developed a tool, one of the booklets that we developed was growing together, parents and their children. And some of the things we talked there, maybe because I'm a medical doctor, I'm a little bit explicit in the way we do things. So when we were in Siaya, one of the pastors said, Doctor, talking the way you are talking is not for me. What we will do, we will arrange for you to be coming every month <laughs> to come and talk to us <laughs> the way that you are talking. I said, that is not building capacity. It will not help. So talking about sex and sexuality is very key. We need to build the capacities of our church leaders to do that. The strategic aspects are to do with prevention, addressing stigma, advocacy, empowerment, leadership, and healing. And then the liturgical, Richard is already coming to me. Let me go to the conclusion. I was going to talk about IRCU. I talked about IRCU, Interreligious Council of Uganda, and I told you that it reaches about 15 million people out of a population of 35 million in one weekend. We can work with them. What is the way forward? To attempt to heal the suffering body is much. To carry the water of salvation to thirsty souls is more. But to combine the two is the grandest work a man or a woman can do. That is from Sir Dr. Albert Cook, the founder of Mengo Hospital, which became a precursor of Mulago Hospital, which is now a training teaching hospital in Uganda for medical students who go through Makerere University. To combine the first role and the second role is the grandest work that a man can do. And the conclusion, in faith groups, we understand a tradition that goes backward and a responsibility that goes forward. If you don't mind, could we read those words together of William Forge, Dr. William Forge? One, two, three. In faith groups, we understand a tradition that goes backwards and a responsibility that goes forward. In the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Praise the Lord.